How about a round of applause for all our scripture readers through Esther? Yeah. Appreciate you guys. Lots of names, lots of fun stuff that nobody knows how to pronounce. Um, hey, before we jump into this, I want to do uh, another quick plug for community groups. Um, it, if you're new to the journey, or perhaps you've been around for a while and you just haven't taken that step and you've not been sure what that step even is, we want to invite you to consider uh, joining a community group. Here's why. It's where the majority of our ministry happens here at the journey. Like, we hope that God does amazing things every Sunday morning when we gather. But the reality is, we know that he, does, he has so much of his ministry that he wants to do through his church happens when we gather with one another, as we live life with one another, as we let others know us and see uh, the... Uh, what's going on inside of us, see our lives, and when we have space to confess to one another. The, the New Testament is full of this language of belonging and sharing life and confessing and, and carrying each other's burdens, and we try to live that out in community groups. And so uh, they're not perfect. We're not perfect. Uh, but man, uh, there's a lot of good stories, and we're going to continue to talk about it in the next few weeks, but there's a lot of things that God has done um, in many of our lives that have, hap- that have taken place in the context of our community groups. And so if you're not involved, we would invite you to consider whether getting ready to uh, start back up, you know, right now for this, this coming year. Many have, have been kind of break, uh, on a break for the summer. Many have been going, but it's a great on-ramp, a great time to get connected with community. So at the end of the service, um, and we have some exciting stuff to even, you know, be talking about uh, some shifts and some ways that we're going to continue to emphasize that and cultivate community life here at the journey that we'll be hearing about the next few weeks. But I want you to go ahead and be, be doing it. And so at the end of the service today, uh, some of our community group leaders, um, particularly those that have um, a good amount of space in their, in their groups, are going to be gathered out by that community group and that on-mission wall for you to just stop and chat and get some questions answered. And you don't have to pick the right person whenever you go. You just talk to them, and they will help you find the right group based off, you know, when, when you'd like to meet and, and uh, all of those things that you have. So just have a conversation with them. There'll be folks gathered out there, and we want you to take advantage of that if you are even interested um, in learning more about it, all right? So please pray about and consider joining us as we try to share life together in that way. All right, so we are nearing the end of this incredible narrative of the book of Esther. Uh, we got this today, and, and next week we'll, we'll wrap up this book that we've been in most of the summer um, and as we've talked about the uniqueness of this book, um, given that it, it doesn't even mention God's name, there's, not, there's no angel that shows up, there's no prophet, and there, it's a very unique book, um, which a lot of people throughout you know, church history haven't really known what to do with and haven't preached and haven't written a lot of commentaries on. But one of the things that I've, I've tried to emphasize and as sort of an overview um, about this book is that I think that it gives us a lot of hope to lean into God's promises and his providence in the midst of what seems to be an increasingly chaotic world, right? So we have this story of God's people um, that are scattered throughout this Persian empire. Uh, They were taken there, they were taken out of their home involuntarily because of their disobedience to God, uh, and they were there for several years, but then they were actually allowed to go back home, and then they chose not to. Many of them did. Many did go back home and do what God had called them to do. Many stayed and sought kind of prosperity on their own, on their own terms. And that seemed to be going okay for many of them until uh, the events of the story happened, right? And, and where they actually are on the brink of genocide. It's, been, it's government-issued genocide against the people of God. And and so you have to wonder, you have, like, you have to humanize this story in order to get 
like the depth of it out. You have to understand that these are actual people, just like you and I, raising their families, doing their life. Many of them did not intentionally try to rebel against the Lord. Many of them are a few generations removed from uh, the ones that directly heard the command of God, and it wasn't necessarily them that you know chose to live in Susa or in other parts of Persia. It was their parents and their grandparents. And, and so th- these are regular, everyday people. These are not people to be demonized or made into heroes. These are people much like you and I. And there is this tension that they're living in, where they're seeing the Persian Empire, and there's some things that are good about it. There's some prosperity, right? There's some opportunity in their life that perhaps wasn't there before. And yet... What is, where, where, where do we stand with God? Like, what, what is God doing in the midst of this, right? What, where, um, what, what's his plan? What should we be doing, and, and how does that interact, and, and how serious was he about doing this, and how religious should we be, and all of these sort of things um, come into play, and, and there's, a, there's a real tension and a real narrative uh, that, that happens here in this story, and what we're going to see today is kind of the, the, the conflict is beginning to be resolved. And, and we're on the other side of the, the genocide has been reversed, as we'll see. And, and we're going to see that God's kingdom will prevail. Okay, And that's, one of the, that's the truth, the big idea from today, that God's kingdom will prevail. However, that doesn't always look the way that we think it should look. And it doesn't always happen in the timeline that we think it should happen. But we can know that, that that's going to happen on a, on a large scale of world history. God's kingdom will prevail. He will accomplish his purposes. And then we're going to see even today that, that even in our own lives personally, in the lives of his people, the transformation that he has set in place, the, the kingdom will prevail in their lives as well. And so that, that's kind of uh, the hope is to lean into and see how in the midst of our world, right? I, I think we can relate to that. If you're honest, you can look at our world and go like, okay, there's some really good things about 2019, right? There's some really incredible opportunities and um, blessings that have happened as advancements in technology and culture has, has come to where it is. And yet there's some really terrifying things. There's some really concerning things, right? Even in our country, like there's some really, like our country is amazing and the freedoms that we have and the, the blessings that we have, they, there's so much to be celebrated and there's so much that we take for granted that's a blessing from the Lord, right? And yet there's some things that are really concerning and there's some direction uh, that are, that's even happened um, you know, politically and with, with laws being passed around, you know, things that God's people care deeply about with marriage and the sanctity of life and all of those things, that there's some concerning patterns. And, and when we, if we're honest, like there's times where we wonder like, okay, God, what, what's your plan here? Like, where are you? Have you, you know, kind of nodded off at the wheel for this portion of history? Like, do you, do you realize what, what is happening here? Do you realize what's happening throughout the world? And we can get discouraged depending on the amount of TV you watch, depending on the amount of you know, contact you have with the world. I know that uh, personally, my wife and I, as we lean into and, you know, we're fostering kiddos ourselves, but particularly when we try to work with other families and are calling other families and with agencies, when we, the, the increasing amount of calls that we get, the kiddos that don't have a place to go here in Williamson County. And then, and then there's stories, like, so that's heartbreaking enough, but then there's stories, right, of sexual abuse, of neglect, of abandonment, physical abuse, those sorts of things take a toll on me, and I begin to wonder, Lord, what are you, like, where are you in this? What are you doing in this? Where are your people showing up in this? And, and it can be discouraging, and we can, if we're not careful, we can, you know, be tempted to just resolve that we don't know, and we're not sure, and we're just going to do our thing and let God handle it. But the, the, the I think the, 
invitation from the author of Esther is to trust in the promises of God that even when we don't see him clearly at work, even when we can't point out and say, okay, that's what God's doing, that we can trust that he is indeed in control, that he is at work, his providence will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish, both on the grand scale, the world at large with history, and then in our own lives. And so we're going to use this story today to kind of lean into to just that. So um, we'll walk through this. In, in chapter 9, um, we see that the day has actually come, the day that, they were, that was set on the calendar for the Jews to, like, to be done away with, right? That there was this government-issued genocide where they said, hey, kill every Jew you see. That means man, woman, and children. Take all of their stuff. You get to keep half of it if you're part of that team, and then you give the other half back to the king. And this is what was issued several chapters back. Um, and that day has actually come, but what we know is that there's been a reversal in the midst of that <clears throat> where God did a work through having his, you know, Esther in, in the palace as the queen, did a work through, um, through her to bring about a reversal in in the story with the, with the enemy being put to death of Haman and, and things have, have switched now. There's been a new decree where God's people are now allowed to defend themselves against anybody that is attacking them. Uh, and it is all about this one day. It's been set for this day where God's enemy or the, people, the enemy of God's people are set to try to destroy them. And now they've been in, that, that's all been flipped. And uh, there's a Jew, Mordecai, in power. And many have kind of changed their team. Uh, but they're still enemies of God, people that are, this is very ethnic based, this is a, a bit of racial tension uh, going on here where there are people that are, are very eager to kill the Jews and are excited about this opportunity, and so this battle is set to take place on this day. So when it comes to, uh, it's all been leading up to this, we've been hearing about this day uh, for a while, they, they, they uh, picked the day by the rolling of dice, right? And they said, okay, we're going to roll some dice, and, and that's the day that we're going to uh, have the Jews be killed. So all this is coming to pass, and it's on this day, arrives. And uh, verse 1, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred, and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered it in their cities throughout all the province of, of King Ahasuerus, or more commonly, as you know, if you've been here, King Xerxes is uh, his Greek name, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Now listen, that's, that's huge. That's, in, that's important to note, because that doesn't happen just because like the Jewish, the Jews were not these fierce warriors and fighters. Like the, God is at work. This is an area where you see, okay, God has done that. It doesn't explicitly say that, but you have to put the pieces of the puzzle together and go, okay, the, the Lord has accomplished this through the reversal. And I love that the text even says that the reverse occurred, because here's the deal. God's people had an enemy. His name was Haman, and he had ascended to number two in power, to basically the vice president of this huge empire of Persia. And the guy, you know, Xerxes was not real interested in day-to-day -day activities, and so he gave full authority to Haman to do whatever he wanted and uh, gave him the signet ring of, uh, you know, basically power of attorney. And, and this guy had been allowed to pass this edict where all of God's people were going to be put to death. And here's the deal. Here's the, here's the reversal that, that the scripture is talking about here, that God's people had an enemy. His name was Haman, and he had rallied the troops, and they were set to destroy God's people and thwart his plan, to, to do away with the plan of God in their day. 
But the reversal is that that guy, that joker, ended up being impaled, if you were here last week, on the very stake that he made for his own nemesis. So we know that uh, all of this, you know, uh, tension, this edict to kill all the Jews, it's all centered on uh, Haman's hatred. Haman's the guy in power. His hatred for this guy named Mordecai because he wouldn't bow to him. And Mordecai was a Jew. Haman decided he's not only going to take his... his, uh, you know, beef up with Mordecai himself, but he's actually going to try to do away with all of Mordecai's people. Uh, but he has a particular hatred. He can't wait until this day on the calendar, 11 months away, to, to see Mordecai die. So he's going to get rid of that joker sooner. So he builds this uh, big, it's called gallows but in the, in the scripture, but his, history tells us it was more like a stake where they would uh, basically run a guy through with this big wooden, wooden stake and then drop it in a hole and put him there for everybody to see. It was kind of an early form of crucifixion. Um, that the Persians had come up with. And uh, he's set to do that to Mordecai. And then this reversal happens where God reminds the king uh, through the reading. He can't sleep one night. He has uh, his people read the the chronicles of the history to him. And he remembers, oh yeah, Mordecai, the guy that Haman hates, had actually saved the king's life and had never been rewarded for it. And so the king goes, you know what? I got to reward that guy. So as Haman is coming in the next day to say, hey, I'm going to kill, just so you know, I'm going to kill Mordecai in my yard so everybody can see. Before we can get that out, the king goes, hey, you need to honor Mordecai and basically throw a parade for him. And so we see this happen and it's a, it's a preview of the reversal that's going to happen on a grander scale because not only does Haman have to honor Mordecai and take him around the city on the king's horse and the king's robes and, and tell everybody all hail the great Mordecai, but actually what's going to happen further is as the story unfolds and Esther reveals that Haman has plotted to kill her people and that she is herself is a Jew, when all of that unfolds, the, the king gets so angry that he orders that Haman himself be run through and hung on the stake or the gallows in his own yard in front of his own family. And so that, that, that reversal has happened. That enemy has been put to death. And now it goes from the Jews being on the brink of extinction to actually conquering their enemies. And we see that they, uh, in, in verse 2, no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. Again, that's the Lord doing a work in their life. And we see this all throughout the scripture, right? We see God bringing his people to a place where their backs are against the wall and there's no way that they themselves can do anything, right? If you read the Bible, you're gonna see all of these instances from from the the famous story in um, Exodus as God is bringing his people out of Egypt. We see that they, they are rescued out of Egypt through God's miraculous works and the plagues and all of that. But then when they get out of Egypt, they run into what? They run into the Red Sea. And they got nowhere to go. They got no boats. They got nowhere to cross. And the Egyptian army is barreling down on them. And in that moment, God is showing them, hey, you have to trust me. Beyond what you can see, beyond what you know, uh, you have to trust me. And God does this incredible work uh, in parting the Red Sea, right? And allowing them to cross and then crushing their enemies in that that deal. And there begins to be this theme throughout the history of God's people where he will bring them to this place, even narrowing down their army on purpose over and over again, bringing them to this place where they themselves have no way out. And then he shows up. And the same has happened here. As the Persian Empire is millions of people, I think it's like three million square miles, 127 provinces, the Jews are, are, are certainly a minority in this empire. And Plenty of people hate them or are just opportunists and willing to you know, profit off of this deal. There's no way they can stand against their enemy as the original edict uh, decrees. There's no way. They can't, they're not going to be allowed to get out. Everybody, everybody from every one of those provinces knows not to let the Jews escape. 
and on this day, they're going to be put to death. So they, they have no chance of fighting this battle, and yet God does a work, right? He takes that guy out of power, puts his own guy in power, and now all of a sudden the, the narrative switches. We, we saw last week that, that Mordecai is in power now, and everybody knows that Mordecai is a Jew to the point that now people who aren't Jews in the Persian Empire are going, hey, I'm actually going to join y'all's team. I'm going to be a Jew as well. And so uh, God uses that to, to switch the narrative, and now not only are they not going to be put to death, but actually fear falls on the whole you know, country regarding the Jews because of what God has accomplished. He has once again intervened in history. Again, his name's not mentioned. That's not clear. An angel didn't come down and announce that, but yet God is at work in and through this. So as we see things unfold in our life, in the world history, as we watch the news, it's important that we remember that God has a plan. He has promised us that he will accomplish his work, and we have to trust in that. We have to know what it is. We have to be clear that we have to read the Bible. We have to be familiar with what God is doing in and through this. Otherwise, we're going to be confused. If we try to project our own plan onto, onto God, right, then we're going to be really frustrated. We're going to be throwing our arms up in the air and going, you know, how could you ha- let this happen? How could you ever do this? We have to be clear that God is uh, pursuing his agenda, right? And when we're familiar with that, then we can rest in it, even when we don't understand how it's going to happen. Even when it seems as though our backs are against the wall, as the Jews were, God has done a great work to bring about this reversal. And, and here's the deal. The purpose of the book of Esther, really, you know, why it's in the Bible is to show us God's work, his providence, and when his people aren't looking toward him, when his people aren't obeying him, that he is still true to his word. And even whenever you know, again, it's not clear what he's doing. Angels haven't declared all, like he is still in control and at work. And the purpose, what he's doing, why he, like he didn't engage and cause this reversal to happen because the people were worth it, right? He didn't engage and cause this reversal to happen and, and fear to fall on all their enemies because he, you know, uh, he just really felt bad for them or they had earned it or they had repented somehow. no. It's very much like we've experienced the gospel ourselves, where we were still sinners, right? And Christ died for us. We've not earned it with his love. We've not uh, made our way, you know, onto the varsity team where we can make it into heaven. None of that has happened, and yet God is faithful to his promises. Why? Because they're his promises, right? He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his own covenant. And he has said, I'm going to, I'm going to make this people. You go all the way back to Genesis 12, and you see what he's doing in and through the people of Israel when he first selected Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through this nation, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. What's he doing in that? He's starting this plan of salvation where he is uh, bringing about this people that will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will bless them, and he will uh, work in and through them. And eventually, he's going to bring about a Savior through them that will provide salvation to the entire world. And so you think about it. That's his plan. It's all headed toward Jesus. It's all headed toward this Savior that will come, this Messiah that will come and, and set all things right and bring God's kingdom to bear on this broken world. That's where it's all headed. And in the midst of this, in this time where God's people have rebelled, they've deserved the exile that they had. Many of them didn't care to go back to Jerusalem and do what they had been called to do. And they just scattered out throughout Persia and sought their own prosperity. In this moment now, a mess has been made and they're on the brink of extinction. And if they die, God's plan is thwarted. If they all go to waste, then the Savior isn't going to come through the way that God had told 
them that he would come through. So God intervenes so that his story doesn't get interrupted, so that his purposes get accomplished. He intervenes so that his salvation could come to pass. And stories like this are not meant to, for us to hold up Esther and Mordecai and other people in there and try to be like them. Instead, they're meant to point us toward Jesus. Jesus tells the Pharisees this in John five thirty nine. He says, listen, you study the Old Testament, you study all these scriptures, you think it's all about following these rules and finding these people to emulate. You fail to realize that they're about me. All of this is headed toward and pointing toward Jesus because here's the deal. We too have an enemy, right? We being humankind, God's people, God's children, the ones made in his image, have an enemy. John 10.10 10 says there's an enemy. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to do away with what God has made. 1 Peter 5.8 says there's a, you know, resist the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's a very real and tangible enemy in the devil, and his forces are coming against God's plan and against God's people. And we have brought about our own sentence of death. Through our sin. That's what we've earned. By rebelling against God, we've earned death. And Satan has played his part in that to tempt and manipulate and to bring all this to bear. And so there's an enemy, and God's people are on the brink of that. We have no hope. We have no hope unless he intervenes. And so the purpose of him intervening here in Esther is to get us to the day in which Jesus would come. And his whole strategy against evil and sin in the world was awaiting a perfect warrior. It wasn't about the holy wars in this time. Like Those were things just getting us to the day in which Jesus would arrive. His whole strategy was waiting for this, this, the day whenever a greater David, a greater Esther, a greater Gideon, when a perfect warrior would arrive, arrive and execute divine justice. This is a quote from uh, author Karen Jobes on the book of Esther. Um, when she says that this perfect warrior would be one who could execute divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart, and his name is Jesus. And this is where our great reversal happens. This is where the enemy is put to death, put to open shame, is dealt a death blow, and where death no longer has its power over those who would call on the name of Jesus. In the, in the moment of the cross, Right? There's, a, there's a picture that I think will be put up behind me here in just a moment that shows uh, the reversal. Much like Haman is hung on his own gallows, the enemy of God that tried to come against God's plan. And he thought that on that cross, on that day, there's a song we sing that darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. Amen? Y'all with me? You feel the way Jesus has died. His disciples don't know in that moment what has happened. They don't know what to do next. They don't know why the guy they thought was going to bring in a kingdom is now laying in a grave. They don't get it. And yet, three days later, God's purposes are accomplished as he burst out of that grave with our freedom in hand. Right, bringing forth his kingdom so that you and I could be saved. Like That's the great reversal that happens, that on the cross where Jesus was crucified, the enemy thought that he was winning, and when in reality he was put to death himself. And so a death blow is, is dealt to our enemy, to death, to Satan, and now the kingdom is advancing. Right, So there's still, uh, there's still a battle to be fought. There's still kingdom to uh, go forward, and yet those of us who have trusted in Christ can have assurance that we will receive his, his victory, the one that we don't deserve, right? But out of his grace, he's extended that toward us. And so this helps us make some sense of even the, the war and the violence that's going to take place as we finish out this chapter here is, is sort of intense, right? And there's, uh, there's 
there's a tension there of, of holy war. And did God, you know, want this to happen and these people to be put to death? But, but here's the deal. In the Old Testament, retro, uh, violence that is, you know, about retribution is really common all throughout the Old Testament. And then you have this switch that happens where Jesus in the New Testament teaches us to what? To love our enemies. So here you're going to see as we go through the rest of this that the enemy, enemies of God's people are put to death in huge numbers on this day. And so we have to, we have to do some study. We have to realize, okay, so is God telling us to you know, pick up our swords, pick up our guns, and, and start you know, a holy war in the name of Christianity, in the name of doing away with evil, right? Or is there something that has switched? And that switch all happened that hinged on Jesus. This is another quote from uh, Dr. Jobes. Whenever she says, um, that sort of violence appears all throughout the Old Testament, but Jesus teaches us to love the enemies in the New. These two ideas seem completely contradictory the death of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, provides the only basis for the ceasing of holy war. And the infilling of the Holy Spirit provides the only power by which one may love one's enemies as oneself. The vengeance due to us for our sins against others and due to them for the sins against us has been satisfied in Jesus' body on the cross. Here's the deal. We're still at war. God's kingdom is still advancing. But how that war is fought has changed. Ephesians 6 says that we don't fight or struggle or battle against flesh and blood. Right? You know this passage. But, but instead, against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, and it goes on to talk about the armor of God in the famous passage there. But what, what that's doing is reframing how we go to battle now. So here's the deal. God is still at work. His kingdom is still advancing. The world is still broken and evil, and those things are still present and true, and yet we're still called to fight, but it's a different sort of fight that we, on this side of Jesus, right? History itself is split before Christ, right? And then in the year of our Lord. We live in the year of our Lord where now God's people are no longer called to take up physical arms and to advance his kingdom through the bloodshed and, and that sort of thing. And listen, that, there's a difference there in that sort of holy war and the general war that is necessary to push back evil. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, that uh, there's not wars that need to be fought and that God's not okay with uh, some of those wars. I'm just saying that the holy war in, in the context of advancing God's kingdom through that sort of sword has shifted now. And it's no longer about flesh and blood. It, now it's about the word of God being proclaimed. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it is the power of, of God. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. That as we speak the word of God, that is our sword. If you read Ephesians 6, and you, there's all this armor that we put on to protect ourselves. And the offensive weapon that we have is what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right? That, that God's kingdom is conquered as we speak the gospel truth, God does a work in that. And just like he caused fear to fall on the people of Persia that were coming against his people in that day, as we speak the gospel truth out of our mouth, it doesn't have to be this perfect presentation, but it's the gospel that bears that power. And the Spirit uses that to call people from death to life. It says that it causes people to be born again. It's not about our presentation. It's not about, like, God uses us in that end, and it's a beautiful thing, but he does that work, causing people to be born again. He does that work where he takes out hearts of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, and he calls people from death to life. 
trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's how his kingdom goes forward. That's what he's doing now. So when you wonder, okay, is, is America going to cease to exist? Is, is, you know, is we keep running off the rails with policy and this sort of thing, and this is happening throughout the world and all of these countries? Know that the promise that he's made on this side is no longer about this na- nation of Israel. It's, it's now about the church. Like we are the ones he's made this covenant with. It's the church, his people, that, where the spirit indwells and the gospel goes forward and the kingdom is advanced one soul after another, one soul at a time as we speak the word of God And people trust in Jesus as their Savior, and they receive his pardon, and they're made a part of his family, and his kingdom grows and grows and grows. And we know where it's headed. Just like he had made promises, and these people knew what God had promised to do, that a Messiah would one day come, we now know where this is headed. Jesus is going to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and one day we'll all be gathered around his throne, singing his praises, and there will be people from every race, ethnicity, tongue, and nation there worshiping our Jesus. And there will be people who have refused to bow their knee to Jesus that will be in that moment brought to a place of sobriety and they will realize that they have made the wrong choice, that they have died as a rebel against the holy living God and they will spend eternity in hell separated from him. And those who have have thrown themselves on the pardon of Jesus have, have said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I need salvation. And Jesus, I believe that you are the one that gives us that salvation. We will experience victory. And that's how the kingdom of God goes forth. It's one soul after another. And there, there are laborers, I was just talking to some of our folks today, their daughters in Indonesia, laboring to share the gospel with those that don't know him. I talked last week about some of our friends that are in uh, the Middle East, laboring to share the gospel to those who are really hostile toward it. And then we've talked over and over again about how God has you where he has you, working the job that you work, living in the house, in the neighborhood that you live in, with the kids, at the ages that they are, and around the parents of those kids, and going to uh, the sporting events, and all, all of that is on purpose so that you could be used to make disciples, to advance God's kingdom where you are in this moment. That's what God is doing. So as things seem to skid out of control and, and we worry about this part of news, we worry about our country, you can know that God is working toward that end. His kingdom advancing, his name being known to all nations, to all people. We, we can trust that that is going to be accomplished. Now, the details of how that happens and what happens in our own lives and here in Illinois and in America and, and you know, fill in the blank, whatever country you're in, like those details, we're not, we're not given those. We don't know how that's going to shake out, but we can trust that his accomplish, his kingdom will prevail. His purposes will be accomplished in the larger scale. And then secondly, the second point, we're going to see that his kingdom will also prevail in us personally, in his people, right? And so we, we've seen on the large scale, we can trust that he will do what he, because he doesn't allow Haman and his, the enemies of God's people to thwart his purposes here in Esther. He causes a reversal, and we're going to see that the people of God actually have their own victory in this moment. So we can believe that that's where history is heading on a larger scale for us. And then personally, though, we're going to see that God is not just worried about the big picture and getting his victory in the end, but he's still at work in and amidst of his people. Right? And, I, and listen, this is good news for me. Because as much as I get discouraged about some of the policies and the, the things, the direction of our, our country, I get just as concerned about the state of the church. Not, not our church. I love our church. And we're not perfect. But the state of the church and the, the, the reports and the, the issues of, like, I get just as concerned about some of the people who, you know, get the airtime 
wearing the Jesus name tag. I'm like, man, I, like, why are those people, like, they don't speak for us. You know, and I get really concerned about a lot of the, the direction of, of, of today's evangelical church and the ways that, that they've been exposed in, in terms of race and in terms of uh, sexism. And t- like, there's some concerning things. I'm not trying to speak generally and get into all that. I'm just saying there's some concerning things that, that make me go, okay, Lord, I know, again, I know your kingdom is going to come. I know your, your will is going to be accomplished on this large scale, but I'm really frustrated with some of the, the stuff that's happening like with your people, the people who claim to be your people. And I have to be encouraged that, hey, first of all, I'm not perfect. He's still at work in me, right? And that's an arrogant position for me to take and to sit back and judge other Christians and other churches and go, what? because I still have my own stuff to be worked out, and God's still at work in me. And the same is true for you. And so I think the rest of the story is going to give us some encouragement that he is at work in and amongst our own lives personally and his people, transforming, not just on the large scale. He's going to accomplish his purposes. But remember, all of this has been about making people in his image, people that will live as he has called them to live, that will live as his image bearers and reflect his goodness to the world. And they failed to do that up to this point. We've talked a lot about that in this, uh, this, this series, but we're going to see that he's going to do a work in and amongst his people and actually accomplish something really cool in their lives personally. So um, we're going to continue reading here the rest of nine and make uh, a quick observation as we wrap up here. So uh, basically, God gives them this victory. And we'll see verses three um, through, I don't know, nine or ten or so, that basically they give a, a great victory. God's caused this fear to fall upon his people, and they they do work, right? That in, this, in the capital city of Susa, there's 500 people that are killed, all of the, and all of Haman's sons. So Haman's already been you know, run through on the gallows, but they actually kill all 10 of his sons, which was a common thing in this day is to not only kill the ruler, right, the one in charge, but to all of his descendants to prevent them from kind of coming back and taking retribution in the future. So they kill all of Haman's sons as well. But they laid no hand on the plunder, and that's going to be important as we go on. You're going to see that mentioned multiple times. Um, verse 11, though, let's skip to that. That very day, those, uh, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel, it's the capital city of Persia, uh, were reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the, uh, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? He's, he's saying, like... Just here in the capital, there's 500 people, 500 enemies of God's people that have been killed. I wonder how incredible the victory is throughout the rest of the 127 provinces, over 3 million square miles of his kingdom. Now, the king says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What do you, what do you need? And, and what further is your request? And so this is, a, this is a shift for this king, right? Normally, he's the guy that doesn't allow anybody to come into his throne room without permission. And if you do, you're going to you know, be put to death. But here in this moment, he's leaning into his queen and saying, okay, what, what more do you want? And Esther says, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Now listen, this is, and, this, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows as well. So this is kind of rough, because if you remember, the edict was, uh, the reversal was on this day they could defend themselves. We talked about last week, like this was self-defense, this was not just permission to go out and, and create this holy war situation, this was self-defense, anybody that tried to attack God's people, they had permission to put them to death um, themselves, and it was just for that one day, and it was limited. But here Esther asked for an additional day, and she asked for the ten sons of Haman to also be displayed on the gallows like their dad. Now listen, 
This is what has. This is one of the things that has made uh, theologians and com- commentators really kind of stay away from the Book of Esther because they don't know what to do with things like that. Because when you're trying to make her into a hero that we can hold up and be an example, things like this, eh, you know, not a great look. Um, if you're if you're writing this story, you're going, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I want my daughter being quite that vengeful and aggressive, right? And so there's some questions that arise from this. And, and, and here's, here's part of the explanation is we don't have to make Esther into this moralized hero. We don't have to assume that this is a righteous moment. In fact, you know, God has been at work in her life. We've seen a transformation, but that doesn't mean she's perfect. And God often does great work through imperfect people, right? We say he draws straight lines with crooked sticks very often. And so it, she could very well be out of line here in this moment. We don't know. We don't get a lot of explanation for it. Now, there is a piece of like, okay, why did she ask for an additional day to keep doing this, you know, to carry out this genocide? There is some evidence that would support that many of the enemies of God's people kind of ran out of the capital, right? That they, they got away, basically. And so she's saying, hey, so that we don't end up dealing with this again down the road, can we have one more day to go ahead and finish this job? So there's some evidence in that, and that doesn't sound that bad. Now, the vengeance of hanging, you know, all of Haman's sons on the gallows along with him, like that's, again, we, we don't exactly know what to do with that. And I would just say in short that, that there's times whenever the Bible uh, doesn't tell us, as one author put it, the Bible tells us everything we need to know. It doesn't necessarily tell us everything we want to know. It doesn't give us all of our questions answered sometimes. And so this is one of those things that we don't exactly know what to do with that statement from Esther. But I want to keep going so we could focus on the people of God and see that there actually is some incredible transformation that I want to make note of here. So the king commanded this to be done, verse 14. A decree was issued in Susa. The ten sons of Haman were hanged, and the Jews who were in Susa also gathered on the, on the next day, and they killed 300 men, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So they finished the job. They kind of got the rest of the enemies. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief. So, so what you just heard was a report from the capital city, And now this is talking about the rest of the provinces throughout the whole Persian Empire. And they got relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day a a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day because they fought both of those days, and they rested on the 15th day. That's just because they had an extra day of fighting making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day as this day of, of celebration, and the ones in the capital did another day. And we'll talk about that and celebration and um, things like that next week. But here's what I want you to notice. Three times it stated what? They laid no hands on the plunder. Now, if you remember, the original decree from Haman to get rid of all the Jews was not only that every man, woman, and child of Jewish descent was to be murdered, but they were to take all of their stuff, right? In fact, that's how it was pitched to King Xerxes was sort of a, a financial gain, right? We know from history that Xerxes had just launched this bid to, to take over uh, Greece, and he got his butt whooped by, you know, Gerard Butler in 300. Um, and so there's that, and he had given this tax break whenever Esther had come into power, and so there's evidence to think, okay, that um, funds were kind of low in the, in the Persian, you know, in the king's uh, pockets were getting a little little lean. And so Haman pitches this and say, hey, there's these people that don't worship you and, and they, or they don't, you know, see you as almighty. And in fact, you know, they're kind of messing everything up. Let me 
let me just do you a favor and have all of them killed, and we'll take all their stuff, and those mercenaries that do the killing, they can take half, but they'll give the other half to you, and it'll be a really nice boost in the economy, right? And so that had been what the decree was. All the Jews were to be killed, and all their stuff was to be taken, all, and the plunder. And this is a common uh, thing in wars in this time. Not only would they kill the people, but they would take all of their stuff. And we see uh, that throughout several different places in the Scripture. But if we... Uh, Go back into the context of what's going on here. We remember that back in 1 Samuel 12, there was this particular, like, that King Saul was given the command to uh, do away with these people. The, the Amalekites, King Agag, right, was an enemy of God's people. And Saul was told by Samuel, the prophet of God, hey, go and destroy all of them. Do away with these people. These are enemies of what I'm trying to accomplish. These are enemies of my people, and I want you to get rid of all of them, every trace that they existed, but don't take their stuff. Don't take their plunder. What he's doing there is separating, like, this war is necessary in this moment, but it should not be about greed. It should not be about selfish gain. It's about accomplishing God's purposes. He says, get rid of all of them, but don't take their stuff. And if you read the story in 1 Samuel 12, they do the exact opposite, right? They kill some of them, then they keep King Agag alive, and then they get the, it literally says the stuff that was no good to them, they got rid of that. But, you know, the fatted calves and, you know, the gold and all that, they're like, you think about it. They're like, well, we're not going to just walk away from that. Like, somebody's going to get this. It might as well be the people of God, right? And so they keep it. They do exactly what God had told them not to do. And his justification, if you read from Saul, I think we'll humanize this because he goes, well, yeah, we kept, you know, the good stuff, but we were going to give an offering to the Lord. And Samuel says, listen. You've disobeyed God. Does God really value your offering over your obedience? This is what we say about giving all the time. God is not out for your money, right? He's not in heaven just really hoping that the people of the journey show up and be generous this morning. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to pay his bills. Like, it's not it, right? That's not how it works. He's after our hearts. And so Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12, he, he confronts King Saul. He says, listen, Really, you think you're going get, to get away with this because you're going to give God some offerings? Does he really value that over just obeying and doing what you were told to do? No, he wanted you to do what you were told to do. And so we've said throughout this book that had Saul actually executed on God's command in that moment, that Haman would have never existed because he was a direct descendant of that tribe of people. And so the very fact that God's people have this enemy in this moment of Esther hundreds of years later is a result of them not carrying out God's command, taking the plunder instead of destroying all the people. And so here in this moment, it's very, the book is very intentional to say three times that yes, God's people killed their enemies, 75,000 of them, the people who tried to come against them. And we've got to think most of them are probably descendants of the Agagites, right? That they're the ones who have this vendetta against God's people. And they stand up, fight against them, put them to death, but it says three times they laid no hand on their plunder. And we know that the decree, the direct reversal of Haman's decree said that the Jews could also kill all women and children, but there's no recording of that. So what you see is God's people, yes, they're, they're involved in violence. Yes, they're involved in this war, but they're doing it in a different posture. They're not killing women and children, and they laid no hands on the plunder. So God has not only accomplished his purpose in preserving the, 
the nation of Israel, the people of the Jewish nation, so that Jesus could later come. He's not only accomplished that, but he's also accomplished the transformation that in this particular issue that he'd been trying to bring his people to for hundreds of years. And we don't know what changed for them. We're not given insight as to why they all of a sudden don't approach the plunder. But I think if you lean in and you think about it, you might even get some more insight into why God allowed all this stuff to happen in their lives in those moments. It's because he was trying to bring about transformation. He was trying to lead them into becoming more and more like him. And so oftentimes, guys, have you ever wondered why God is allowing that sort of suffering, that sort of discipline, that sort of um, just frustration in your life? Right? Why are you doing this, God? Why is things so hard? Like, oftentimes, he's coming after another layer of our heart. He's coming after another portion of our idolatry to set us free from our sin to a greater degree. And I think what we see here is that these people, through their suffering, you think about it, they've been brought into exile. They've lost the promised land. They're brought into exile. And then they're set free from that, from that bondage. They're free to, they're commanded to go back into God's kingdom and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. But instead, many of them stay in, you know, Persia and pursue the prosperity on their own terms. That all happens. And I think many of them are like us where we just think, well, you know, we just do Christianity kind of on our own terms and we don't have to get that serious about it. And we don't have to go be missionaries and adopt kids. Like, we, you know, we have all these justifications. Well, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We just live this comfortable life. But God used this, this very real decree of genocide to sober them up. Right? He used that in their life to transform them to now when God did intervene in this moment, they celebrated and they were ready to wholeheartedly turn their lives back over to God. Do you think about it? What they're walking away from is like not having to work again. When you kill somebody in this day and age, you take, you take their life, like you, you're entitled to, like they could have taken their whole estate, right? So we're talking about them walking away from, you know, basically a, a nest egg that would, you know, set them up for the rest of their life, and yet they don't lay any hands on the plunder. Why? Because they had been transformed by the grace of God in their life. They didn't deserve for God to intervene the way that he had, and yet he had. Yet he had showed up for them. Listen, folks, this is true of you and I. We don't deserve the grace of God in our life. We don't deserve for him to have given Jesus the way that we talked about him giving him earlier, and yet he has. And that grace is so powerful and tra- so transformative that the law is no longer what we're about, punching this, you know, these checklists and these do lists to do this, go give this amount and come to this church this amount and don't do this. And don't. No, 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 it's about grace has transformed us from the inside out. We're so moved by the work of God in our life that he would love us so much that we're compelled by that to live a different life. So God's kingdom will prevail overall in history, and then secondly, in the life of his people. So I want to ask you today, where, where is God's kingdom le- like pressing in on you? Where have you personally said, well, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start following God, and I'll do this, and I'll come to church, and I'll, you know, I'll even join this team, or I'll do that. But you're, you can see what happens is like we're, we're so quick to get rid of like the really dark stuff, like the stuff that everybody can see. Right? So we kind of stop you know, doing the, the big sins, but we keep a lot of our stuff. Right? We justify it. Well, it's, you know, I can still, I'm not sleeping around, so looking at a little bit of uh, porn is, is not that big a deal. And I'm not you know, stealing any you know, money on a large scale, but skimming a little bit off the top here and there. Or fill in the blank, you know, whether that's 
you know, drinking a little bit too much and, and hiding that in the closet, or like whatever it is and for you where you're, you're kind of holding on to, and maybe it's just gossip, like you, you feel better about talking about other people so that you could kind of bring them down so you could bring yourself up. And, and you know that that's wrong, but like it's not that bad, right? Like you're not out being a, you know, debaucherous heathen. So you're going to hold on to that. Like, where is it that God's kingdom is still coming for you? And here's my invitation. God says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He's not given up on you. And even though he's got this grand scheme and this grand uh, movement to be um, doing and advancing his kingdom to all nations, all tribes, like he's headed there, he still cares about you and your personal life. He still cares about you and your personal holiness. He still cares about you and your personal freedoms. So many of you are still entangled to sin and you can't let go and you can't get free and you're so fearful to confess that to anybody because, man, what would they think? And so you just stay in that bondage. He still cares, like, he cares about you personally. He wants to set you free. So the invitation is, won't you, would you come and just surrender today? Like, his kingdom will prevail. There will be a day whenever you are set free com- completely, Right? fully, where you see Jesus, he has conquered all, and he comes back, and, and in that moment, we will no longer be in the presence of sin, because he'll do away with it all, but, but listen, we should desire and long for it more and more in our own lives today, right now. So, as we close, that's my invitation, is to, for you to be honest with yourself. Where is it that the kingdom of God is pressing in on you, and what would it look like for you to surrender today? The altar will be open. I'll, I'll be up front. I'd, I'd love to pray with you. Folks you came with, sitting next to you, would love to pray with you. And, and uh, sometimes that's a long process of transformation. Don't get discouraged by that. Years he was at work in God's people, and he disciplined them, and he used this circumstance and this circumstance, and he brought it to completion, and he's going to continue that in us. So we can lean into that and have faith in his promises that his kingdom will prevail. We can, we can trust him. So you, work, you come and respond this morning to that. Whatever the Lord is leading with you personally, you come and respond. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that, that you are the one who is responsible for our transformation. You're the one who is responsible for our holiness. And I pray that this morning you would bring your spirit to, to fall in a powerful way that many of us surrender, Lord, maybe for the first time that there would be those who would find you as Savior this morning and repent of their sins for the first time. Lord, and then for the rest of us, may we lean into your kingdom coming here in our life in regard to our secret sins, in regard to our personal struggles. Would we claim your name and surrender this morning? For you are better, you are greater. Would you do that work in our midst? It's in Jesus' name, amen.